All right. Yeah, so for me, um, she had that line in there, that theme about um, if, if Christianity suddenly became illegal, like, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That was like, oh, that was like really convicting. Yeah, so there's, there's that, um, you know, just, just about whether you're uh, able to carry that identi- identity as something that you really own, or is there some sort of shame around that? So there's that, that, that which was really interesting, and then... Um, and then, you know, she, she said this very quickly, but, and then she had the Solzhenitsyn quote, um, but she, she talked about how she thought people were like good people or bad people, right? And she was one of the good people, right? But, but then she realized, well, actually, it's a lot more complicated than that, right? Because that line is right inside, the, inside of our own hearts, right? And so that, man, for anyone who's a believer, like that, that's the realization that we've all had, right? That actually we're not good. Right? Uh, there's times where we express God's goodness in our lives, and then there's, there's times where the, what comes out is something that's very perverse, right? something that's not good, right? and, and that, that line is indeed inside of us. And so uh, that actually um, is very much in line with what we're going to be talking about today. Okay? So we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke, um, except we're not, uh, except we're not. So I cheated, and um, the, the next couple of parables I was going to uh, c- cover, it's uh, two short parables, but then in the Gospel of Matthew, he says almost, he writes it almost in the exact same way, but then he puts this longer parable and then the explanation for that parable right around these two. So then, and then those three go well, really well together, so we're going to go to Matthew today, all right? But we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke, okay? All right, so... Um, Sorry, Luke. All right, today's the day of Matthew. Okay, um, here we go. So it's, uh, yeah, we'll just read this, okay? Um, and he, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed, sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." Okay, so what's going on here? So like I mentioned earlier, conveniently, this is one of the parables where we get an explanation. Uh, so let's just skip to that, all right? And uh, that'll just do my job. All right, so then he left the crowds <clears throat> and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. We have no idea what you meant. All right, so and he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples said, we still don't understand. All right, so, um, so uh, Jesus tells us in verse 38, okay, so what's, what's going on here? He tells us that the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, okay, 
uh, sons of the kingdom of God, right? And the, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. Okay, so on one level here, <clears throat> this seems to be talking about people. It's an observation about the world, that there are people who are for God. There are people who are against God. More specifically, maybe people who follow Jesus, people who don't, right? So there's like two categories of people, right? And so that seems like what he's saying. But later in verse 41, it's, he also, like, when rooting the weeds, the, he also re- refers to all causes of sin, yeah, all causes of sin. And so, so clearly the weeds and the good seed here, they don't just represent people. Okay, so Jesus is kind of, it's, it's a more of a principle, right? There, there's like, maybe there's good and evil in the world. It's, it's something like that. Uh, maybe another way to look at it is there's the way that God intended things to be, right? Sons of the kingdom. And then there are the perversions, the corruptions of those good things, right? The sons of the evil one. So what's What's the picture, then, that Jesus is painting of our world, right? It's, it's this field, this world. It's a world that God designed, and when he created it, God declared that it was good, right? And it's true, right? There's so much good in our world that God has filled it with. We live in a world that's full of life and abundance. It's teeming with life. Um, and we look out and we see the colors, the sounds, um, all right, the, the magnitude and the majesty of, of nature. Uh, and, and then we, when we look at that, we see in it the, the echoes of a creator who, who loves beauty, who's creative himself. And it's the handiwork of this creative maker. After all, the, the same God who, who set the planets into motion also created eagles and orcas and hippos and my favorite, koalas. <laughs> funny like why did god create koalas i have no idea right but it's not just nature it's not just nature it's in the human experience there's so much good right like such moments of like deep love joy longing nostalgia moments when you lose yourself in laughter and then there are quiet moments when a parent and you, you'll hopefully all experience this one day but when a parent is watching their sleeping child right it's uh there's moments like that where you you just wish that that moment could last for an eternity, right? And, 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 it, and it tugs at something in your heart. And you, you believe that the world is full of goodness. This, is, this happens when you witness something that's genuinely kind and, and selfless. Um, maybe it happens when you bite into a perfectly cooked medium rare steak. There's a lot of good in our world, right? <laughs> As God designed it. Right, but Jesus says that amidst all that good... The weeds appeared also. Or into the perfect and good world that God created, evil entered, right? There's opposition to God's good plans. There's a, a perversion, a vandalism of the good that God created. And we also see this in our world. Our steaks cooked well done, you know? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. All right? You can, you can do that if you want. That's fine. Um, no, but we see, right, we see it, right? More seriously, right? We see that, right? We see it in all the injustice. We see it in the economic inequities. We see it. In all the war and the strife that we can't seem to avoid, um, we see it more personally in, in families, in individuals' lives, uh, trauma, abuse, right? We could go on and on. I think there's no shortage of examples to use to show how, how there appeared weeds also, right, amidst the goodness. And so this world, right, that, the, the picture that Jesus is painting is that there's wheat and there's weeds, right? There's both. And so then... So then when we reflect on this fact, I think we want to ask the same question that the servants asked. Master, 
Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Right? It's a good question, right? What's up with the weeds in the field? Like, isn't this your world? Aren't you the all-powerful sovereign Lord over history? Like, what is up with all the evil in the world? And that's one of the common objections against Christianity, right? And then the master's response, right, in Jesus' story is this. He says, an enemy has done this. Right? Jesus' very simple answer to why there's evil in the world is that there's an enemy. Right? And, and God's aware of that. This wasn't just some mistake that God made. It's not random. It's not that things in this world are just broken and don't work right. There's actually an opposing force, an opposing will at play. And in fact, the rest of the scripture is unapologetic in its claim that there is actually what it calls Satan, right? Actual demonic forces against God, actively opposing God's will in the world. And so what Jesus is doing here is, as he often does, he gives a sneak peek into the much larger cosmic reality that's going on. The fact that there's God and there's God's will, and then for whatever reason, God allows this opposition to exist, at least for the time being. Jesus doesn't try to explain the origin of this enemy, where this enemy comes from. He just acknowledges the fact that it's there. All right then, so if, if that's the case, if that's the world that we live in, um, if there's so much evil in the world, then what should we do about it, right? What should we do about it? And, and generally, I think people kind of fall under two extremes, okay? Like one extreme is sort of the, that's just the way it's going to be. Like the world is broken. There's no way to solve these problems. So I'm just going to focus on like taking care of myself and my, my family, build a fortress around myself with career, money, possessions, health, so that when the world goes to hell in a handbasket, at least we'll be okay. Right, so there's sort of that. It's sort of the, I'm going to close my eyes, pretend like nothing is wrong, and maybe it'll turn out okay, at least for me and my progeny approach. Okay, so there's that. And then there's sort of the more idealistic response throughout history, which has been to make an effort to remove that evil from the world. Right? Uh, to maybe even imply that we all have a moral obligation to work towards some utopia, some perfectly designed society in which there are no weeds. Right? And that sec- latter one, that's how Jesus characterizes the servant's response. Okay? Um, so the servants say in verse 28, then do you want us to go and gather them? Okay, in other words, should we go out there and should we start pulling out all the weeds? Right? That's what they're saying. Should we go out there and eradicate all the evil? And interestingly, the master responds, no. No, just leave, just leave them for now. Verse 29. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. So it's interesting, right? Jesus is saying, okay, I know there's evil in the world. I know you want to do something about it, but maybe to some degree we need to leave it alone. Right? Why is that? Because now a little bit of um, explanation. Okay, so here, so Jesus is referring to weeds. Okay, so it's uh, most likely this particular type of weed called darnel. Now, when wheat, wheat, the good stuff, when wheat is young and hasn't fully matured yet, it's actually very similar in appearance to darnel, really hard to distinguish. Not only is it hard to distinguish, but because they grow together, the root systems would be entangled. And so if you were trying to correctly identify the, the weed and in, in, in trying to uproot it, you might actually damage the wheat as well before it's at full maturation. Right? So, so it's, it's, it's kind of a, a tricky situation to be in. And so, and so farmers would actually typically do what this master in the story is recommending, which is let both grow together until the harvest. Just let them both grow. And we'll sort them out later at the harvest time. And so using this imagery of the wheat and the darnel, 
Jesus is painting this profound picture of our world. And I think we can definitely see that this is true, right? That good and evil, they exist together, that sometimes it's hard to tell them apart, and that it's entangled and meshed in such a way that it's impossible to separate it out in a neat way. And this, this, this works itself out in, like, all sorts of ways in our life, right? And I was, I was thinking about, like, cars, right? Cars are awesome, good thing. It's an invention that's benefited humanity in many ways, right? Increased mobility. You can get from point A to point B with less time and less calories spent, right? Love my car, right? But it's, but it's also true that cars have had other effects on our society, right? I mean, some are, the, some are obvious, like carbon emissions, that whole area, right? But also more um, subtle things as well, like the increased mobility. Like, what has that done to our society? Like, has, has that all been good? Um, largely been good, I guess, but maybe it means that people are more self-sufficient. Maybe it means that Communities don't need to rely on each other anymore with the increased mobility. Uh, maybe it's increased or contributed to an individualistic culture and the erosion of community in our society. And then this social shift, I mean, it's, it's affected the church for sure, right? Christians who live like two hours or like an hour away from their church. And then so you have like this two-hour diameter where people attend this church and it's like, oh, the, the church is supposed to be a family of God and close community, but how can that happen when we live two hours from each other, right? And so there's like all these side effects to something as simple and everyday as a car, right? And so then let's get rid of all the cars. It would be stupid, right? That would be stupid. So like, yeah, so it's like that, right? It's like, let's just tear out the weeds. Like, that's, no, that's not the solution, all right? So this is what we're getting at here, right? So, you know, we can do this for any number of things. It's kind of a fun exercise, actually, right? Let's think about beauty, like beauty is a good thing. God created beauty, something that we can admire and appreciate. Um, but then the appreciation of beauty, like the perversion of that, is lust. It's weird. Um, and then even even if it's not lust, right? Like beauty, that that leads to all sorts of other things. Like it can lead to covetousness, desire to possess that, the the comparison game that happens. It's the source of many people's insecurities, sense of worthlessness, cause of depression. But beauty is a good thing. Right? Like, do we just get rid of it? Like, what do we do with that? Right? What do we do with that? It's, it's, it's enmeshed, right? Um, now, it's not just in our society. It's not just in these abstract concepts, right? It's a, it's a picture of the human heart as well, right? And that's sort of what the testimony was getting at, right? I think about, like, even something like a person's sense of justice and fairness. Right? That's good, right? That's a good thing. If your roommate is always leaving his dishes unwashed in the sink... And he's leaving a mess all the time, and you're always having to clean up after him. Your sense of justice and fairness is going to inform you, this is wrong. How could he be so dirty? If he continues this way, what kind of husband and father is he going to be? And it'll cause you to speak up, and there'll be just, it'll just be blessing for both of you, right, to have that conversation, right? So that sense of justice and fairness, it produces a rightly placed concern for your friend. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. But then what happens? That, that, what starts off as a genuine concern for him, what starts off as a good thing, right, a sense of justice and fairness, can easily devolve into way more than that. Anger, bitterness, passive aggressiveness. This is not right. He's always mooching off of me. I need to teach him a lesson. And now there's vindictiveness, right? And, and, and it's not that justice and fairness become bad, but it gets enmeshed with other stuff that's all around us, like the bitterness, the short-temperedness, the anger, the rage, the selfishness. And it's hard to, it's hard to separate it out. 
Right? When we look inside of our own hearts, we find that we're capable of both and all of these. Right? Good and evil, they're enmeshed within us. In the same heart is the ability to be a son of God, the son of the kingdom, doing the things of God, and a son of the evil one, doing things opposed to God. So then going back to the servant's question, should we then pull out the weeds? Now, what if the master said yes? What if the master's strategy is, as soon as there's a weed, just get rid of it? What would happen to me? Right? What would happen to us? Like, what would that mean for me in my heart, which is so full of both good and evil? Right? Would we survive that? Right? That quote that, um, that sister in the testimony shared earlier, right? It says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people, some were insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Right? This is why, right? This is why utopian, experience have, kind of utopian experiments have not worked throughout history. Right, whether that was the church's attempts at doing this, to force people to convert through becoming a state-run religion, grabbing as much power as possible, rooting, trying to root out all the other religions. All the way from the Christian experiments to the secular, atheistic experiments, of largely of the 20th century, where millions died in the name of Marxist revolutions in Russia, tens of millions dying as a result of the quote-unquote great leap forward in China. And so, like it's... It just doesn't work. The utopian experiment doesn't work. And so what is the master's wise advice? He says, leave it alone. Let the plants grow for now. Now, I don't know about you, but I still, like, that still doesn't feel like good advice to me. That still feels like, wait, really? Like, your advice is let's just not do anything. Right? That just doesn't seem right. And that's not actually what he's saying, but um, it just feels like, okay, let's just let have evil, like, just let it have its way or something like that. But what the master is saying, though, right, in the, in, the, in the context of the larger passage, is that there will come a time in the future, right, when the master will call his reapers, these angels who are able to tell the difference between the wheat and the darnel, and they will be separated out. There will be a final reckoning. The good will be separated from evil. But in the meantime, in the meantime, what is a thoughtful Christian to do when faced with a world so enmeshed with evil? Well, first of all, it helped me to remember that these parables are analogies, right? So it's limited in what it communicates. So in the parable, the assumption is that the darnell stays darnell forever, and then the wheat stays wheat forever. But in the real world, it's not like that, right? The darnell can turn into wheat, right? People who are opposed to God can turn to him. Evil things in the world can be redeemed for good. So in the real world, it's not, they're not necessarily static identities. So, so then what are we to do? So I think that's where these two additional parables that Jesus tells comes into the picture. Okay, so let's read this. Okay, I'll have you guys read this for me. Ready, go.
All right, thank you. So why don't you take 30 seconds? Okay, just, just review with the person next to you. Okay, what, what do you think this is saying? What is the main lesson here in these two parables? Go. All right, 10 seconds, 10 seconds. All right, so, um, so the mustard seed, okay, the mustard seed is a, is a very small seed. It's the one on the left there. I know it looks big because it's zoomed in, but it's a very small seed. It's the proverbial small seed, okay? I think maybe botanically speaking, it's not necessarily, but for, for people in first century Israelites, like this was the thing, like this was the smallest thing that they could think of, right? So, so that's, that's what this is. So um, now the point is that this tiny seed, it becomes this garden bush that is such a size. It's the largest of all the bushes that it, even the birds can maybe mistake it for a tree. They can even hold the weight of a bird, right? And so, so that's the idea here. And Jesus is using this very kind of homey picture, uh, just something that they would have been familiar with in their everyday lives to describe what the kingdom of God is like, right? It starts small. Nobody thinks much of it. And then it grows and grows and grows far beyond what anyone expects. Right? Same idea with the leaven. I don't know if that's actually a flower and leaven. It looks like mud. But... Um, I'm hoping it is. All right. But anyways, assume that it is, right? And it's a small amount of leaven, and it can spread throughout three measures of flour. Okay, so the three measures, um, it actually translates to 47 pounds of flour. So that's a lot of flour, okay? Just enough to feed 100 people, maybe 50 of me. But um, it's a lot of flour, okay? So the, the, the point here, again, is that that's how the kingdom of God grows. Like, it starts with this little thing, and you, you don't think it would be able to do such a thing, but it ends up permeating the entire dough, right? And so... The thing about both of these is um, the way the growth happens is really slow. I don't know if you've ever tried to watch a seed grow. It's not very fun, okay? Um, and same thing with leaven. Like, you stare at it and you can't, you can't really see it rising yet, right? It's sort of, it's, it's sort of like that. But then, but then the growth, even though it's slow, what is hap- it's, it's happening steadily, right? It's happening steadily. And, and at the end of it all, at the end of it all, when you look, it, there's actually been significant growth, Right? So that's sort of our experience of these, these types of growth. Right? So it's slow, it's steady, it's significant growth. Now, I just want to appreciate that for first century Israelites to describe the kingdom of God in this way would have been shocking. I know this shocks none of you because you're just familiar with, with this passage, you've, you've heard it before. But their understanding of the kingdom of God coming was that it would come suddenly. Right, because their understanding was that the Messiah, the Messiah was supposed to come and, and it's supposed to kick some like the oppressor's butt, right? Like like the Roman Empire at the time, like they're it's supposed to overthrow the Roman Empire, and it's going to be this instant saving of all of God's people in a cataclysmic event. That was their understanding of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is actually giving this parable that's so like 
whatever to us. It's so short also. But, but then it's, it's this like complete change of mind about how God's actually going to work. Now, Jesus isn't saying that their understanding of the, the kingdom of God coming, which they got from the Old Testament, they're not, he's not saying that that's not going to happen. What he's saying is that that's going to happen later. Right? It's going to happen one day. But it's not at the Messiah's first coming. That's going to be at the Messiah's second coming. But then the kingdom that's being overthrown, and the, and the, and the kingdom that's being overthrown in this cataclysmic event is not the Roman Empire, but Satan's kingdom. Right? And so when Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, how it's already come, and how the growth is going to be like this mustard seed, Jesus is saying that's what he's doing right now. He's inaugurating the kingdom of God. And it's, it's not going to come on the scene like they expected. Instead, when the Messiah arrives, when the Messiah arrived, I guess, by this time, like, what happened? Like, as we know in the Christmas story, he was born as a baby in a manger, right, feeding trough for animals. And Jesus, in his life, he didn't, like, organize an army. He didn't build institutions. All he did was he poured into 12 guys. Right? He poured into 12 guys for three years. And then he was crucified, died, buried, rose. And then he gave the mission to the 12. And at that point, probably most people looked away. Like, okay, well, that's the end of that. Like, I mean, that Jesus thing was kind of interesting. But there goes that. That's the end of it. And then, and then they look back and they're like, wait, it's still going. Or they're still here. And this is how the kingdom of God ends up growing into the Christian movement that we have today. Right, almost imperceptible at first, but then growing and growing until it permeated the entire known world, such that by the 4th century it was the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. This is a fascinating subject in, in, in church history. Um, so I just pulled a couple of quotes. Um, so this is Will Durant. Um, he's known for this like 11-volume like history of the world thing. Um, it's kind of interesting. Not that I've read it, but it's just interesting as a concept. Um, <laughs> But here's an interesting quote from him. That a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty and ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. The outlines of the life, character, and teaching of Christ remain the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. And then this is... Hi, Siri. Um, So... so this is Rodney Stark, um, and this is what he said. He said, how did a tiny... My Siri is actually responding to me now. Stop, Siri. Okay. All right. How did a tiny and obscure Jesus movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? Or the historical record, it shows that Christianity, it spread like from a small group of people from the outskirts of the Roman Empire... And then it spread even amidst pretty severe and violent persecution, and that it spread from Jerusalem geographically, but also across class and ethnic boundaries. Right? It's like pretty incredible, such that by AD 313, you know, you guys have all probably learned about the Edict of Milan, like from your history classes, which is traditionally thought of as the reason that Christianity succeeded. But in recent scholarship, including the work of Rodney Stark, they've demonstrated that it's more likely that actually the Edict of Milan was a, a, a savvy political move right, in response to the rapid growth that Christianity was already experiencing. So it's really interesting, right? 
he says, uh, Rodney Stark says, rather than the cause of cause, rather than cause the triumph of Christianity, the Emperor Constantine's Edict of Milan was an astute response to rapid Christian growth that had already made them a major political force. And Christianity would then go on the next thousand years to reshape not just people's religious views, but to inform and shape the West and all of its worldview. So much so that today, most of the values that we take for granted in our societies can be traced back to Christianity, right? Like the fact that we believe in equality, right? We all believe in equality, right? That every person in the human family has equal moral status, no matter their rank or race, religion, or gender. Or that we believe that people have freedom, like people have freedom, right? That people are not property, that they should be able to control their own lives. Or, or the fact that we believe in progress, we believe in moral improvement over time, we believe in reforming our societies to, to make moral progress, and we can actually look back on the formal, former evils of the things that people thought were okay. Like the, that kind of idea. Right? These are all Christian ideas that the secular West has adopted as its, as its own values now. But where did it all stem from? Right, stem from Christ's teachings. Now, I don't have time to like go more into that in detail, but I know some of you are interested in these kind of things, so let me just recommend the book to you, okay? So this is a book that I'm almost done reading called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. Excellent read. So his whole contention is that Christianity is to the Westerner what water is to fish. That's the analogy he uses, right? It's just the environment that you're in which shapes everything that you see and do, but you can't see it, right, because you're just in it, right? And so, so in Western society, like, the Christian worldview has become the norm. So, so much so that it doesn't need Christianity anymore. Interesting, interesting. So, um, but the point, okay, the point of all this, right? So Christian ideals permeating society, like that's where we are today. My point is that it started with the mustard seed, right? It started with a little bit of leaven. If you think about the world that the first 12 disciples faced when Jesus told them to go make disciples of all the nations, it was a pretty evil world. Right? Slavery was rampant, there was ritualized temple prostitution, there were gladiatorial games, infanticide was a common practice, people were burned at the stake for believing the wrong religion. Against this sort of societal backdrop, these 12 guys, uneducated, relatively uneducated, small town dudes that Jesus just picked off the street as he was traveling, Right? They begin to proclaim this message, this gospel message. And this handful of guys, they were so totally committed to proclaiming the gospel, even willing to give up their lives, that they began this movement that, that turned the first century upside down. And their message and their way of life started to reorganize and to restructure the ethics and the values of the very culture that they were in, such that even today, 2,000 years later, we still feel the effects of the reforms that they brought about. Now, how did they do that? Well, they did it by faithfully carrying out the mission that Jesus left them with. Let's read this together. Ready, go. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? The last statement of Jesus before his ascension. Right? They said that you will be my witnesses. That's what they became. They became Jesus' witnesses. Now, what is it that a witness does? A witness is someone who testifies to what they have seen. Right? In other words, they, they preach the gospel. They share the good news that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And then they witness not just in Jerusalem, but in all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And they did it faithfully with conviction because they believed 
They'd been given the most important message in the world. And they did it even to the point of death. Death itself becoming a powerful witness that they truly believed what they were testifying to, that they were willing even to die for it. Some of you might know this already, but the, the Greek here, witness, the Greek for the word witness here, right, it's, it's martyr, right? That's where we get our English word martyr, right, which means to die for something that you're witnessing about. And so through their witness, one by one, people began to believe. And as people began to believe, as individuals started to believe the gospel and get transformed, then slowly and steadily, it changed the course of history. Right, so it's, it's this dynamic that Jesus is describing in the leaven and the mustard seed. You know, earlier in the um, parable of the weeds, we talked about how in our world, good is enmeshed with evil, right? And that evil, it can seem insurmountable. And I think since we see a lot of big problems in our world, we then naturally think that we need big solutions to those problems. Right? We need policies need to restructure our, our government or we need to redo economic policies. and We need some new technology, something big that will change our world in some cataclysmic, cataclysmic way. But Jesus says that we don't need a big solution. Right? What we need is a mustard seed. Right? What we need is something potent. What we need is something that God designed. What we need is the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God. Like, what is that? The kingdom of God is the state of affairs where God is king, where God is actually king. But that's the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is always going to start small. It's going to start with 12 men who had no, absolutely no chance at starting the Christian movement that they did. And yet they did. And that same potency, that same power that the kingdom of God had back then, and we still got it today. But what it requires is it requires every new generation of believers, every new generation in the church to take up the mission that God has entrusted to us to continue the slow, steady, but significant growth of the kingdom of God in our generation as well. There's a lot of evil enmeshed in our world. And um, it makes sense that there's, like, I guess a seemingly endless number of causes that we could devote our energies to, right? Right? And I know that um, the millennials were the first generation to really start moving towards wanting causes, but Gen Z is, like, really known for that. And there's, like, so many causes, right? Social justice, equality issues, climate change, just mental health. I mean, like, there's a lot of important issues that we could kind of give our lives to. And that's good, right? That's not, I'm not saying that that's wrong, right? Like, we've been given a world that we need to steward, um, we have to move towards people and the needs there are in the world. But at the same time, I think what the parable of the weeds tells us is that on this side of heaven, we'll never have a weed-free world. It's just not that simple. And so it's very important that the church, that the church not lose its focus, that the church stay focused and do what Jesus has uniquely positioned and commanded us to do in the world, which is, to preach the gospel and make disciples, who then make more disciples and more disciples, and so on and so forth. And as individual people become transformed by the gospel and the love of God, I think what we'll find when we look back is that transformed people make a transformed world. 
And that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago with 12 guys inside of a culture that was far more difficult than ours. Right? So the question is, do we believe that that can happen again? Now, I want to end on more of a, a personal note. We've been talking about the kingdom of God. It's this kind of big, abstract topic, you know, how that's grown steadily and significantly, how we've seen that play out in church history. But I just want to note that this is also the kind of growth that happens in every Christian's life. Right? This should be all of our stories. It's not that we get hit by the gospel and then our lives just become the kingdom of God immediately and we're just transformed overnight. No, the process by which our lives reflect the kingdom of God, the process by which God becomes king over our lives, it's actually kind of a slow, steady progress. But then you look back and, and you, you look back and you're like, wow, there's actually been transformation. There's actually been growth. You actually look back and say, wow, the gospel's actually utterly transformed my life. And you're not going to be able to see, see that kind of growth in the first couple of weeks after becoming a Christian, not even the first couple of months, maybe, even the first couple of years. But if you look back after 5, 10, 15 years, a couple decades, it's like, wow, just like the leaven, the gospel It's been making its way through every area of my life. And I can see that. I can see that. You know, I see it in my own life. I think about, like, me as a freshman and what concerns I had back then and the things I was insecure about and the things that I thought I was supposed to do with my life. And, like, I think in my life right now, it's frankly, it's a little bit unrecognizable. It's sort of like, wow, I can't believe I'm living the life that I am now. Um, I see it definitely in the lives of the staff that I've had the privilege of being with here in Chicago for almost five years. And then some of the staff here, like I've known them since their undergrad days, and so I've known them for like a long time, like eight, nine years now, right? And I pulled up, I just quickly pulled up an old picture here. Um, so people like, uh, oh, turning off the lights. All right, okay. There's Nicholas. There's Elaine. Percy. B as Rebecca here. Is Jeanette even here? Jeanette's not here probably, huh? Because she never joined us for anything. <laughs> Just kidding, Jeanette. Uh, yeah, so, no, but it's, it's pretty crazy, right? Like, um, like, man, back in, like, 2016, like, if you had told me that these people, this sophomore, was going to be in Chicago with me, trying to start up a church, I would have been like, ha-ha, good joke, right? So, um, but it started, but when I look back, I can see the mustard seed, right? I can see the mustard seed part. I can, I can see how, wow, actually, all of that, like the, the little step of faith they seem to take in that time, right? When, when in sophomore year, right, uh, his friends and mentors told him, hey, you have the face of death all the time. Could you smile a little bit? And then Nicholas goes and starts smiling, right? Like that step of faith. Right? Just, just learning, okay, yeah, because I should be friendly, like, because I'm a Christian, and I should, like, love people around me. Like, how that mustard seed, like, what is that going to do, right? But no, like, you look back, like, eight years later, and it's like, well, that's, the gospel did something to you, right? You're, you're, an, you're unrecognizable, right, from the person that you were before. And so this, this is how, this is how the gospel works itself out in your life, okay? So I, I just want to encourage you, like, it's so, so much of what I got to experience in my life of following Jesus just comes down to me holding on for one more day, 
right? And, and saying, you know what, I'm not going to give up on this. Because it's not that every moment along the way it feels super victorious and, gosh, I know exactly how God's leading my life. And No, like a lot of times it just feels like a daily decision to say, God, you're God. You're God. And I have this one life that I get to live. As much as my heart wants to go this way and that way and that way, in all these different ways that I know you're not necessarily calling me to, I have this one life. I'm just going to just going to hold on for one more day, you know? It's like, that was the level at which I think I experienced my daily life, right? It's slow, it's steady, but then when you look back, wow, there's been significant growth. I don't know if it's the kind of messages that I've been preaching. We've been, you know, going through the book of Luke, and like I've mentioned before, there's a lot of stuff about judgment and, and stuff like that, and so I find myself thinking about death a lot recently, like every day, actually, um, it's like usually at nighttime as I'm like getting ready to bed, go to bed or something. And then, but as I, as I think about death, you know, that, that's something that used to scare me, right? Like, you know, when I was in middle school and things like that. But I think when I think about it now, I think it makes me sad, right? It makes me sad because I think this life is actually really wonderful. You know, there's like so much that I enjoy about life, right? So it's, it's like the... Right? The good and evil is enmeshed, right? Like, as, as tough as life is sometimes, there's so much that's good. And I, honestly, I can't imagine a life or not having a life where I get to enjoy the things that I enjoy, right? I can't imagine being, like, like not with my wife or, like, not being able to spend time with my kids, right? Like, it's, like, a life where I don't get to experience the joys of eating together with people that you care about and just laughing over something stupid. Like, I can't, like, it's like, wow, that's gonna, is that gonna come to an end one day? And then I realized that it doesn't have to, right? Because I think heaven is a continuation of the best that life has to offer, right? And, and the sadness, and I'm sorry, because I've been thinking about this, like, I think the sadness that I feel about death, it's more like a nostalgia. Except in this case, it's a nostalgia for something in the future. Right, not something in the past. It's it's sort of like it's something that I know I'm meant to have, but I only get glimpses of it in the here and now. Right? In in my best moments when I'm appreciating the best of what I have, I think that the that sadness I feel points me toward a future that I will have one day. So that's why in this life I have to do everything that I can. I have to just remain just faithful daily so that I can bring as many people with me. Right into eternal dwellings as possible. And so I want to end with this passage from the book of Acts. Um, this is late in Paul's life. He's uh, headed towards Jerusalem uh, where he knows he'll probably be killed uh, for continuing to preach the gospel. Uh, it's his last time with the leaders of Ephesus, the a church in Ephesus, which is a church that Apostle Paul poured a lot into. And so it's a very sad account, um, actually, as they think about this being their final time together. Um, but as I was reflecting on this message, this is the passage that, uh, that came to me, so I wanted to just read this. Okay? Um, let's take turns reading verses, okay? So we'll just, I'll, we'll now. I'll go one, you go one. I'll read even verses, you read odd verses. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Now I know 
I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. So guard yourselves and God's people, feed and shepherd God's flock, his church purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. When we had finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. They all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. They were sad most of all because he had said that they would never see him again. Then they escorted him down to the ship. Yes, I was thinking about this passage because, like, this is Apostle Paul's last time with them. And, and this is a church, again, that he spent a lot of time with, right? Three years he devoted to the building up of this church. And what he can honestly say to them is, I held nothing back. Right, day and night, I, I gave you the whole counsel of God. Um, and so then I think Paul gets to leave with a clear conscience, right? Even though I'm never going to see you again, I've, I've given you everything I have, right? And, and that's the hope that I, my hope for all of us, which is that we don't hold anything back, right, from the mission that God has given to us, right? Like, like our fears, our other desires and interests, these things might cause us to hold back sometimes. But at the end of our lives, what will we regret? Will we regret, like, like yesterday um, uh, during one of the games we were playing, um, Jason was put on the spot, and the advice that he gave, oh, his, uh, Jeanette asked him, like, what's an advice you'd give to a Chicago student? And then he said, he said, my job never checked my GPA. I don't know how that's advice, but I guess it's saying you don't have to worry so much about it, right? Like, which is true. You know, I had a really good GPA, actually. I'll let you know if you want later, but um, uh, none of my jobs ever asked for it, so kind of bitter, right? So, like, what are you going to regret at the end of your life? Like, that you didn't work harder so that you, got, you could get, like, 0 0.02 more on your GPA? Or, or that, like, you didn't try your utmost to bring another friend into the kingdom of God? Right, what are you going to regret at the end of your life? Right? And, and I think that really should inform how we live. Right? So, um, so this is what I have today. So I just wanted to give you a few minutes now to think about how God's speaking to you. Right? And I want to encourage you to just use this time to write or, or to pray. Um, just give you guys about two or three minutes to personally respond, and then we'll have a time of discussion.